0: Uh, we're in our second week of the book of Ephesians this week, and uh, so start heading that way in your Bible if you've got it. Uh, you'll find it. it's in the New Testament, uh, right after the four Gospels, right after Acts and Romans. Uh, keep moving past First and Second Corinthians, and when you see Galatians, pop past that, and you'll find it right there. So uh, last week, we, we learned about the love of God for his children even before he had created the world, and we learned a bit about the blessings that we receive Uh, from our union with Christ, uh, all that that comes through our faith in Christ. Uh, And today, my hope is that we're going to gain a better understanding about redemption. Uh, You're going to see it in the text here real clearly, uh, what it means, how it is accomplished, and uh, what is the result of the redemption that has been accomplished for us. And so um, I'm also hoping we're going to gain some clarity about the the long-term plan of God for eternity, Uh, And not just to have the information, but so that we might have a better understanding of what it means to be pursuing uh, the will of the Lord, uh, even as we live here in a broken world. And so uh, if you're open to Ephesians, uh, we're going to read. We're going to read starting in verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. And when you see that first phrase, in him, uh, just remember from last week, that's talking about Jesus Christ, our Savior. So uh, let's read. In him... (coughs) Let's pray. Lord, make us to know our sin well, so that we will grasp the weight of what it means to be forgiven. As we seek to understand your word this morning, we ask that you would enlighten our minds to understand it and our hearts to receive it. May you be glorified in all that we do this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's just jump right into it today. Uh, The first phrase that we see in this passage is, Uh, is this statement in him we have redemption through his blood and I'll submit to you that redemption is one of those words that um, that we know how to use you can use it in a sentence but really we don't understand the details of that word it's a it's kind of like I know how to use the word verklempt in a sentence Uh, maybe you've heard it uh, I'm feeling a little verklempt talk amongst yourselves uh, I assume that word has something to do with being ill, but if you ask me anything else about it, I couldn't tell you. Uh, I really have no idea. It might mean confused or, you know, annoyed. It could mean any sort of thing. Uh, so most Christians then know that uh, in Jesus, we have been redeemed. And we know that means something like forgiven. But did you know there's more to that word than, than just the general idea of being forgiven? See, on a, on a deeper level, redemption is a word that Um, includes the idea of it being a payment that is made to reclaim something or someone who has been taken away or who is being held captive, like a a prisoner. And so when the Apostle Paul in this passage uses this phrase, in him him we have redemption through his blood, he's intentionally using this Old Testament word that would have been familiar to at least half the people he's speaking to. (coughs) And it was a word used when when God set his people free from slavery in Egypt. Uh, You might remember at that time, God tells Moses, uh, go to Pharaoh uh, and, and, you know, stand before him. And I want you to say, thus says the, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And he does that. And Pharaoh resists this. Uh, but eventually, God does indeed redeem his people. It was accomplished, in fact, uh, when the spotless lambs were slaughtered and their blood was, was spread above the doorpost, which sounds like a crazy thing to do, but God was, was doing something there and pointing forward to something bigger, you know, because after that, after they spread that blood above their doorposts, uh, as the angel of the Lord moved from home to home, uh, taking the life of the firstborn son in every home, those that, that had the blood above it, the, the houses of the Israelites, the, the angel would simply pass by. And the oldest son would live. Uh, in Deuteronomy 7, 8, uh, it speaks of, of God setting this, the, the people free from this slavery in Egypt. And it says, It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, perhaps we, we hear that and, and we think that's, that's great and all, but, but really, we're not prisoners today, right? This is America. It's the, the land of the free, America. Uh, you know, we do whatever we want here. That's kind of the idea that we, we seem to think of our nation. And so, so maybe we need to really understand that now, apart from our union with Christ in the gospel, we are indeed actually slaves. Um, what I mean is that uh, our personal sin, that being the, the sin that we actually commit, the lust cheating, jealousy, greed, uh, anger, pride, all those sort of things, uh, uh, you know, all of those sort of things, plus also our our sinful nature, which we have inherited at birth from from Adam, all of these things have left us captive to sin, you know, shackled, not not free, meaning we are incapable uh, of not sinning. It enslaves us. And so we need to be redeemed. And sometimes if you're on the other side of that, you forget how desperately that need really is. You know, all I, all I... And I know that really in our culture, there's this kind of cliche thing that, you know, look inside yourselves. Look inside yourselves, you know, to find meaning and to find purpose and to find freedom. But listen, the, the depth of our sin goes down to our absolute core. Try to imagine it this way. It, it's like... Digging deeper into a ball of cheese in the hope that you'll find something other than cheese. You won't. You're just going to find more cheese. In our case, we're just going to find more sin. Sin at work in our thoughts, sin at work in our actions. And so we've got to look outside of ourselves if we're going to be set free. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the lamb, the sacrifice, Jesus is the price paid. redemption to set us free. And and John 129, John the Baptist, who's a different John than the title, but uh, John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River, and he he sees in the distance, he sees Jesus coming towards him, uh, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so redemption means that we've been set free but our, our passage also gives us some more specifics of, of what occurs at redemption. Maybe you, you notice that after that redemption statement, um, you know, if you look at the punctuation, there's a, a comma there. Right after that part in verse 7, it's not a period, it's a comma. And, and the idea here is that uh, the idea just continues. You know, it's not a stopping point that that uh, because of this, you know, it, it's showing us what it means to have redemption and it, you know, in the blood of Christ. And what does it say? What does it carry on to? It says forgiveness. We're set free from our sin, and we are forgiven of our sin. We see the same statement in Colossians one 13 through 13-14. It says, uh, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, those of you who have walked with the Lord for many years... You know, I, I want to ask you, I mean, do you, do you struggle to zone out when you hear this? And I mean that. I, I, you know, I find myself there sometimes where you think, I, I know this story, I've heard this story. I've known it since I was four years old. And, and just this temptation to, to zone out. And, and, and if that's the, you know, the, the case, that you've heard it so often, I, um, you know, it, it's one of the reasons I love illustrations, honestly, is because illustrations are like seeing a, a new painting of an object that we know really well. Uh, it draws us into the beauty of an object or a person. Well, in this case, uh, a glorious act accomplished by a glorious Savior. And see, I think often when, when people think of being set free in terms of the gospel, we, uh, or anything really, we think of people who are, are innocent, right? Um, those who have been wrongly declared to be guilty. Uh, that they deserve to be set free, things of that nature. And, and that's not really the case of, of men and, and women and children before the Lord. See, now, we just had this transition of presidents. I don't know if you realize this happened. Uh, I tell you that, just in case you didn't know that, so, uh, this is new information. you. Donald Trump is now your president. Um, so now you know that information. Uh, but as part of that transition of power... Uh, As President Obama prepared to leave office, as is often the practice, he actually set a number of people free who were convicted of crimes. It's called a a pardoning, a presidential pardoning. It is technically called an executive forgiveness of a crime when you look up what that actually means. See, uh, this time President Obama set free 212 individuals that were just pardoned. And, and every time this happens, it, it bothers many people, which is, which is understandable because you see this, and on some level it means that criminals are uh, not being held accountable to their sins, or at least not to the degree that was originally agreed upon in the courts. And now I'm not pointing this out as a, a political issue. It's complex. I'm not saying that the government should or should not do this, but I do want you to understand that in the gospel, we are not innocent people. We're not people who have wrongly been convicted of our sin, because, you know, you and I are, are sinners who have rightly been convicted and found guilty of, of what God, um, and, and what God does then is, is pardon us. Uh, there's, there's one difference, though, you know, one will, or some will say that presidential pardons are, are unjust because the crime is, is simply wiped away. Um, you know, one might say that what Obama or Bush before him did was illegal, was but, but unjust. And that's fine, you know, if that's a few. But the same accusation cannot be made of God. Because the punishment of the crime wasn't simply wiped away, it was actually paid. It was paid by someone else, and not just somebody else, but by the very Son of God. And that's a huge deal, because uh, you can be absolutely certain that, if, uh, that President Obama would not have pardoned a single person as he left office, if that meant that the the pain and the death of his daughter was going to happen or was necessary. And yet that's the very thing that our Heavenly Father does. See, he purchases my sin-stained life, he's purchased your sin-stained life with the precious and perfect love or blood of his only begotten Son. In First Peter 1, 18-19, it says of uh, these new Christians it's speaking to, and it says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish, blemish or a spot. So you see, our, our redemption, our release from this enslavement came at a great price, and it's not with silver or gold, not money, but with the blood of his innocent son. So my freedom is is real and and sure and complete as a result of this. See, there's now no more fear, no more condemnation, no more fear of hell or or, or the wrath of God, no more fear of of death in this. Our redemption frees us from and frees us to so much more than we may even realize. From the the fear of the, the shackles of sin frees us from the, the consequences of sin. It also frees us to have fellowship with the Lord, our Lord himself, and that, for that reason alone, it is very precious. But there's more. Not only are we pardoned so that our understanding or so that our standing is now that of someone who did not commit the crime, but in the gospel, we actually receive something supernatural. And this is one of those things about Christianity that can weird people out. But, you know, in, in Christ, we actually receive power to, to resist sin and, and, and can now live lives, though not perfect, yet pleasing to our Heavenly Father. You know, because we, we, when we receive redemption in the gospel, it, it changes us. Uh, it's kind of like when, when Peter Parker is bit by the spider. Uh, you know, he's still Peter Parker, but now he has this, this new ability, something he, he didn't previously have. He gets this new identity, Spider-Man. We also get a new identity. It doesn't sound nearly as cool, uh, but it is superior to to what is Spider-Man. You know, our new identity is that of, of children of God. You are a child of God. That's a new identity. And that also means that as strange as it sounds, the third person of the Holy Trinity makes a home within us. We're going to learn more of that and about that in coming weeks, but for now, just know that uh, we're not asked to change so that God might then love us, but because God loves us, He does indeed change us. He changes us for our joy. He changes us for His glory. And so, we understand then that redemption is a work of setting us free, and uh, we understand that the source of that redemption is the blood of Jesus Christ. And we also see that God lavishes upon us the richest of his grace that's one of those words you've you've likely heard in different contexts right the and the idea of wealth someone can can have a a lavish lifestyle and it means basically abundance right luxury Uh, this is grace in abundance you know one way we receive the grace of god lavishly is is that it's ongoing um You know, this week, as you leave here, maybe before you leave here, you're going to sin. You're going to sin in your heart. You're going to sin in your mind. You are going to sin in your actions. And you are likely going to do that more than once. And that's why it's so important that we understand that on the cross, God did not purchase for us a second chance. You know, it wasn't a blank slate, so to speak. No, what he purchased for us was eternal forgiveness for the sin that we've already committed and for the sin that we unfortunately have not yet committed. And so the Lord also lavishes on us just general mercies, things we might not even consider on a day-to-day basis. But uh, just as the Old Testament author in the book of Lamentations uh, 3.22 writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, like, like the joy of a cup of coffee or tea greeting you each morning, so does the mercy of God uh, and the gift of life and the very real hope that we have in the gospel. So then in verse 8, we, we see this statement about the mystery of his will. The idea here is not a, a, a riddle. It's nothing that we are to, to figure out. This isn't a movie like The Sixth Sense, which I won't ruin for you, or a game like Clue. Uh, it's about revealing something that you simply could not know. We could not know unless God chooses to reveal it to us. And, and the mystery is not... Truly made known to everyone, but really to those who are coming to faith in Christ. I mean, do you know what the, the mystery is? You know, it has certainly always been the plan of God to deliver his people by grace and, and the power of his, his son Jesus. But after Christ's death and resurrection, we can see God's plan very clearly. Um, put simply, it's, it's what we see in verse 10 of our passage here. To unite all things to him, things in heaven... And things on earth. Some of the first fruits of this plan uh, unfolding is the way that the Jews and the Gentiles, who have been lifelong enemies, are suddenly united to each other as they're united in Christ. Uh, We're going to see this in greater detail in chapter 3, verse 6, makes it real clear there. You can probably see it if you have your text open in front of you. It says the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And yet gentiles and jews do not constitute all things and so we must see that god has a bigger plan than we may even realize as he's working to unite all things in christ Uh, so it's kind of a heavy thought Uh, the most simple way to word this idea is that god is redeeming his world and that might sound a little strange this you know uh And this means that what we learn about on Sundays, what we learn about in in scripture, is more closely related to your life on Monday and Wednesday and Saturday and every other day than you might currently acknowledge. See, uh, all of life is related to the gospel. And and again, I, I hope that you see that this passage, as you work through it, it's commas, it's not periods, it's commas, it's an ongoing connected idea here. Not independent ideas and what we're seeing then is that that what God has done personally in your life in regards to redemption by by setting you free God is doing cosmically as well so we often miss this one giant overarching truth because we think of our salvation only in terms of individual what does it mean for us right you know I I am a sinner and in the gospel, I am saved. And that is absolutely true and a beautiful thing to know. But we mustn't forget that God has plans much larger than just our personal redemption. And so then our individual redemption is a foretaste. Uh, a foreshadow of, of what God is doing and, and, and will do with all of creation. And, and that's why in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, you know, in regards to Jesus, it says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What that means is God is at work making this world, his world, new. It's a cosmic redemption. See, we will all be redeemed, or all will be redeemed and united under Christ Jesus. Things will be the way they should be. All things will be restored. Uh, Abraham Kuyper famously said, uh, you've likely heard this before, he says, there is not one square inch of this world over which Jesus does not stand and say, this is mine, mine. Practically, this, this means that because God's plan is to unite everything, we ought to now, today, be living in accordance with that plan. You know, the, the questions come up. We, we wonder, what do I do that matters? You know, somewhere in, in your pursuit of a degree, you start to wonder, does this degree even matter? Or, or your job, as you get into it, and you get over the excitement of just having a job, does my job really matter? See, one way to, to be in line, to live in line with, with God's plan, the plan of our gracious Savior, is to, to even now be submitting to the lordship of Christ. The way we submit to the lordship of Christ actually matters. You know, we, you know the way that you handle alcohol matters. It's either done so in submission under the lordship of Jesus or, or we do so in rebellion against his authority. Same's true for the way we, we date, the way we receive entertainment, the way we treat people, the way that um, uh, we handle interacting with people whose opinions differ greatly from us. You know, the way that we we seek racial reconciliation, not as a replacement for the gospel, but as an overflow of the lordship of Christ in all areas of life. Another way that we we put this into practice is is how we go about forgiving others. And this is a huge one, you know, uh, because it begins with this understanding of of just the gravity of what it means for, for our sin being forgiven. If you make light of that, you're just not going to understand how you, you offer grace to someone else. It's, it's enormous, you know, because nothing in your personal history is more significant than the forgiveness you receive in the gospel. And I, I really mean that because I, I don't care if you're elected president. I don't care if you're made the queen of England. I don't care if you're going to become a five-star general. Nothing is more significant than receiving forgiveness from the God of the universe whom you have greatly offended with your sin. That's huge. And it also matters because to the degree that we understand what it means to be forgiven, we will freely be willing to forgive others. See, the grace and mercy that that we receive in the gospel flows through us so that we offer grace and mercy to others. Uh, A friend of mine recently said, uh, I found quite profoundly, he said, hurt people hurt people, forgiven people forgive people. We see this in the Lord's Prayer as well. We we pray it together every week, right? Um, It's in the liturgy, and and it includes that phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And every once in a while, someone will tell me that's the wrong translation, and that's because they memorize a different translation. There's another translation that uses the word trespasses, just like verse 7 in our passage today, and so that the prayer says, "Uh, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass, against us. And really trespass is a, it's a beautiful word. It's a very helpful term because there's this picture you can imagine boundaries, borders, right? That when you cross them, you are now trespassing. In my, my home state of Texas, it's a big deal if you trespass. Um, they take it way too seriously. Um, perhaps you've seen one of those signs. I might have shared this with you before. Uh, I think it's a joke. I'm not always sure, but it says no trespassing. Violators will be shot, beaten, and stabbed." survivors will be prosecuted it's taken pretty serious um, in the case of God's law though his boundaries are even scarier than, than Texas see the, the wrath of God and this is not a fun thing to say but it's something we see in scripture the, the wrath of God will be poured out on all violators who trespass across the boundaries that God has established and at some point you realize that's, that's where we stand on the wrong side of that, that border. And, and here's the thing, though. There, there are borders, there are standards in, in, uh, in line with the ways of God, and there are also boundaries in our culture that are op- opposed to the way of God. And some boundaries are good and godly, and yet today are mocked and disregarded. Marriage, for instance, uh, the value of, of life of an unborn child, uh, various views on, of sexuality, numerous other things are, are, are boundaries that have been mocked in our culture. There's also boundaries in our culture that have found their way there because it's being set up by sinful people who set up sinful walls in that regard. And a lot of these need to be torn down as as we look to to God who is uniting all things under his law. Uh, One of the most obvious ones in our our country's history is racism. Um, It's one of the most clear examples of this. And one of the ways that we, we put this passage into practice it is to work to see those, those different ethnic backgrounds dwell in peace and, and love with one another, for one another. Uh, one of the most beautiful examples of Christians doing this in history is uh, the story of Jackie Robinson. You probably know it to some regard. Uh, he was a gifted uh, uh, African-American baseball player during the time when the, the major leagues was an all-white league. And it was all white be, because of uh, prideful elitism that is quite contrary to the the character that God desires for His people. Uh, and there's a man named Branch Ricky. Uh, Branch Ricky. He's actually he was a St. Louis Cardinal before they started hacking people. Um, but <laughs> that's for Sam. He's a cardinal. Uh, Branch Ricky, though, was the president of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and and as a uh, he was a white man. And one of the things he saw was that. Uh, this ban on, on African-American players in the major leagues was something that was wrong. It was something that was against the, uh, the word of God, and, and he sought to change it. Um, because he sought to change it, you know, he shared an article on Facebook. Just kidding. He didn't do that. Um, that doesn't change things. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry that's a hobby horse uh, so now he wasn't just just going off his perf- personal opinion and this is a big deal because uh, what we feel is right and wrong sometimes can be very inaccurate he was going off of what he learned in God's word was right and wrong and so he had absolutely certainty and and, and he could move this direction and make a commitment to this because of his commitment to the word of God to know this And one of the things that we don't hear so often is that both Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey were Christians and that connection they had to each other that was deeper than than their own ethnic differences really helped them to work together to to tear down this ungodly cultural wall. Uh, One biography saying uh, speaking to these two men said, Robinson was a Christian and, and his Christian faith was at the very center of his decision to accept Branch Rickey's invitation to play for the all-white Brooklyn Dodgers. Branch Rickey himself was a Bible-thumping Methodist whose faith led him to find an African-American ball player to break the color barrier. At the center of one of the most important civil rights stories in America lies two men of passionate Christian faith. And they had that connection. Now, now I'm not expecting you to hear this and then go out and change your, your, your culture at that same level. But I will encourage you to let the gospel just soak into every area of your life, you know, so that you begin to, to look out, and when you see this broken world, that you don't, you don't lose hope, but you trust that God will indeed set it right. And, and that means that, that the gospel is, is really changing the way that we think about music and lyrics and arts and, and all sorts of things. It means that the, the redemption of our souls as we are in union with Christ has something To say about our careers, about our our callings, our our schooling, our our mothering and fathering, our our place in the army, our dating, our marriages. It has something to say about about everything. You know, as we we pray and we seek that the Lord brings all things into line under his, his will. You see, one reason we don't think about how the gospel changes our lives in those smaller details is quite honestly just because... That's hard. It's hard because it requires deep thinking. It requires knowledge of God's word. It requires some aspect of really knowledge of self. It, it takes reflection and, and prayer. And like I said, that is very hard. And so too often, we'd rather just keep doing whatever we're doing. But I'd love to see us try it this week. You know, to, to start simple, to ask ourselves one of those questions that you can't answer like that. You know, how, how does my parenting reflect the gospel, if you're a parent? Or, or how do I relate to my classmates and my coworkers in, in light of the grace that God has lavished upon me? And again, it, it will not be a quick and easy answer the kind of thing that you, you wrestle with others in community with. The kind of thing that you, you'll probably come to conclusion and conclusion and conclusion as you continue to wrestle with it. But it is, it is worth doing these hard things. So let me add just, just one more thing. We're almost done here, but in light of this passage, one more thing. Um, here it is. Never get sick of talking about the redemption that comes to us through the blood of Christ. And that's because the individual redemption that um, the individual redemption we have is not only a foreshadow of what God is doing, but a picture of the redemption that really we desire to see others receive. And I, I say that. I know it seems obvious, but I say that because sometimes we act like like the gospel of some restaurant that we want to recommend to people. Right. Um, you know, we, we recently had some friends that were down in Texas for a bowl game that I don't remember the score of. Um, but as they were down there, we, we suggested a Mexican restaurant that we love. We we're like, it's so great. You're going to love this restaurant. You've got to go there. It'll be the greatest thing ever. And they came back, and they're like, eh, it was okay. And they're not our friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, so really, though, though, you know, when people respond that way, though, we... we you kind of get that, like, regret of maybe I shouldn't have recommended it, um, that fear of I don't want to recommend that to anybody else. What if they don't like it either uh, or any other restaurant at all? And, and you know, because there's this fear. Maybe they won't like it. Um, maybe it's just something I personally like, and, and it's good enough that it's just something I personally like. See, but when we are commending Jesus Christ, when we speak of the gracious or the glorious grace that we receive in the gospel, we are not recommending a restaurant that appeals to our personal taste. We're we're recommending a a sort of antidote, an actual antidote to the curse of sin. See, I'm not telling someone about my Savior because, you know, you may like him. I'm telling you about my Savior because you need him. Yes, I find Jesus wonderful. I I hope you do too, but but even more than that, you know, you need to know that uh, this, you need to know this gospel. And I need to know that you need to know this gospel so that I am willing to risk that you might reject me, that you might reject this gospel and, and be willing to risk that because I know how deeply you need that. You see, what a glorious God we serve that, that he's seen our sin, and, and he's provided the grace that we so lavishly need. I want to I end with this, this statement. I have no idea who originally wrote this. I looked for it. I couldn't find it. Um, but it puts the love of God for us in, in this proper perspective and the redemption we receive from Christ. It says, if man's greatest need in life was pleasure, then God would have sent an entertainer. If man's greatest need would have been money, then God would have sent a financial consultant. If man's greatest need would have been for information, he would have sent an educator. But God in his infinite wisdom knew that man's greatest need was forgiveness, and so he sent a Savior. Let's pray.